I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 90. Our scripture this morning is Psalm 90, the entire psalm. This is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And hear now the reading of God's Word. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past, or as they are in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, and we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, we ask that you would help us indeed to number our days in light of this broken world in light of what sin has wrought? Would we reverently consider you? Would we reverently consider our days and know that we would look to you for our satisfaction? That we would look to you and rejoice and shout for joy even in the midst of our years. Father, would you bless your word this morning? Would you attend to it by your spirit, we ask that you would help us, help us to see you, help us to know you, help us to love you. Favor us, we ask this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Can you be seated? Well, good morning, Faith Community Church, and happy new year. It's good to see you all. It is appropriate to start the new year just as we are, gathered together as brothers and sisters worshiping God, gathered around His Word, considering what He has to say for us. And as we just read here in Psalm 90, may that be our prayer, that the Lord would favor us, that the Lord would favor Faith Community Church in 2023. Amen. 
New Year's Day presents to us a range of emotions and thoughts and feelings. It's this interesting juxtaposition of hope and of reality. And on the one hand, we have hope. You and I hope that things might be different this year as compared to last year. There is a hopeful anticipation of what might be. That the fact that today is the first day of a new year means that there's a prospect of new goals to be achieved, perhaps a new outlook, a fresh vision of life. This might be the year when I actually achieve my resolutions. There's a brand new year on the horizon. It's clean. It's fresh. If I could borrow from the literary world, some of you may be familiar with Anne of Green Gables, the headstrong, curious little girl who was always getting herself into trouble. And one day she comes to her adoptive guardian, Marilla, and she says this. She says, Marilla, isn't it nice to think that tomorrow is a new day with no mistakes in it yet? And just so, 2023 is a new year with no mistakes in it yet. And there's this hope, and then alongside it, there is reality. The reality that another year has passed. The reality that you and I are another year older. The reality that we can't get yesterday back, much less yesteryear. For all of us, life is heading to an inevitable end. Things are wearing down and wearing out. Our homes, our vehicles, our health, our bodies. And so for the believer, hopefully there is a a sober reflection on the past and a realistic view of the future, having lived in this world and experienced the brokenness, we know that it's not all roses. And whether we like to admit it, we know that in 2023, there will be some adversity. But here in Psalm 90, Moses expresses to us the realities of life. Time marches on. Our years are brief. And in their midst, they are hard. And the cause is sin. And God is our only refuge. And so, brothers and sisters, as we stand on the edge of 2023, we need a heart of wisdom so that we may look confidently and and soberly into the new year and, yes, with joy, satisfied in the Lord, offering Him the fear that is due Him. And as we move through the text this morning, we're going to see two themes. We're going to see immortal God as we sang about and as we've read about, and we're going to see mortal God man. Immortal God. He is timeless and eternal. Verses 1 and 2. Mortal man. We are but dust. We are temporary. And Moses laments this in verses 3 through 6. We see again mortal man in verses 7 through 12. Our years are marked by sorrow and toil, and it's all due to sin. And Moses laments, but he comes back to immortal God at the end, that God is our only satisfaction and hope. Immortal God, mortal man. 
And the summary is this. In light of our sin, in light of our mortality and the brevity of our lives, we need to be taught to number our days that we may have hearts of wisdom for 2023. And so what is the context of Psalm 90? Just a little bit of background. We see that Moses is the author. We see that in the title, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. This isn't the only song that Moses has written. It's the only psalm that's recorded as Mosaic authorship. But we know from Exodus 15, Moses has written a song as well. In the cross, after the crossing of the Red Sea, Moses penned a song. He also penned another song in Deuteronomy 32. So we know that Moses is a songwriter. And here he writes in Psalm 90. We don't know the exact historical occasion for this, the historical setting. We know that much of Psalm 90 is a lament. It's a lament for sin. In verse 8, he laments the sin of the community. He also laments that sin has brought death. You see that in verses 3, where we return to dust. You see that in verse 5, where God sweeps men away. You see that in verse 7, where we are consumed or we are brought to an end. And so Moses laments that death is a reality. And Moses also laments that our years are like a sigh in verse 9. And so we don't know the exact historical place, but we can maybe have a few guesses. Perhaps it was when the sons of Korah rebelled in number 16. And they brought their complaining and their grumbling to Aaron and to Moses and to Miriam. And God unleashed a plague that killed over 14,000 people. The earth swallowed up these families, swallowed up Korah and Dathan and Abiram. Maybe Moses was thinking of this as he penned Psalm 90. Maybe it was when the Israelites quarreled at the waters of Meribah. So much so that in anger, Moses struck the rock twice. He was supposed to speak to the rock. He struck the rock twice. Water came out for the people, but God disciplined Moses himself. And he said, because of this, because you have sinned, you will not enter the promised land. Maybe Moses was thinking about this as he wrote. Psalm 90. Or perhaps maybe it's just simply that an entire generation died in the wilderness. An entire generation died because of the spies' rebellion in Numbers uh, 14 and Israel's refusal to enter the promised land. And God said this, none of the men shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. Your dead bodies will fall in the wilderness. It's a reality that Moses experienced, and maybe he's thinking about this as he writes Psalm 90. We don't exactly know. These may be appropriate. And because we don't know, it's also appropriate that it fits our time, and it is timeless, Psalm 90. As we move through the text, I want you to notice and listen for and see specific language as it relates to the passage of time. As we read here a moment ago, we heard of generations coming and going. We heard everlasting to everlasting, of days and of years, of yesterday, of morning and evening, of a night watch. These are all strong indicators that there is a time element involved in Psalm 90. What an appropriate psalm 
for the beginning of a new year. Time passes. So let's look. Let's begin in verse 1, and let's see immortal God in verses 1 and 2. God is timeless and eternal. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses begins with God, with Adonai, master, ruler, and he says this, two truths about God. God has been their dwelling place for all generations, and God has existed for all eternity. Look in verse 1, Moses considers the passing of generations from one generation to the next, and he says, in all of those generations, God has been Israel's dwelling place, literally their habitation, their home their abode. You think about, think of Israel's life. Much of their life, they were wandering around in the desert without a home. And Moses confesses that their only true abode, their only true home is God alone for all generations as the generations come and go. And then in the second verse, Moses declares God's immortality, that before he created the universe, before he created the earth and the world, meaning the totality of creation, all of it, people, earth, creation itself, the universe, before all of that, God existed as the uncreated creator. Moses marks time by the passing of generations, and you and I mark time in the same way. Way. Moses looks back to the beginning of creation when time began, and yet God is timeless. He was before time began. As the text says, He is from eternity to eternity, from everlasting to everlasting. What does it mean that God is timeless? What does it mean that He is eternal? Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, has a nice definition. Quote, God has no beginning, end, or succession of moments in his own being, and he sees all time equally vividly. Yet, God sees events in time, and he acts in time. And as we heard last week in a Christmas sermon, in the fullness of time, God sent his Son. God acts in time, but God is timeless. God is the pre-existent, self-existent, unlimited, eternal creator. He is without equal, without rival from everlasting to everlasting. Indeed, God is immortal. But note immediately how quickly things change in verse 3. While God is immortal, man is mere mortal. Starting in verse 3, you return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. In this section, in verses 3 through 6, Moses will lament our transience. He will lament the fact that we have brief and fragile lives, that we are dust and we are compared to the grass of the field that flourishes and withers. In verse 3, return to dust. God, in fact, commands mankind to turn to dust. This phrase, return to dust, where have we heard this before? 
Well, this takes us all the way back to Genesis. To the account of man's creation there, Adam and Eve. This phrase has echoes of Eden in it. From Genesis 2, verse 7, it says this, The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Adam was made out of dust. It's the stuff that you and I are made from. But why return to dust? What is this? This is the curse that God pronounced on Adam after eating the forbidden fruit. In chapter 3 of Genesis, God comes to Adam after they have sinned, and he says to Adam, because you have listened to your wife and you ate the fruit of the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through all, through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. Until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Death is due to Adam's sin, to mankind's sin and rebellion. In fact, you and I are lumped in with Adam because all the sons of Adam will return to dust. Literally, if you look at the end of verse 3, it says, Return, O children of man. The literal words in Hebrew are sons of Adam. And that's what you and I are in this room. We are all sons of Adam. Return to dust. You think about this, Moses would have been acutely aware of the curse. He wrote, after all, he wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He would be familiar with Genesis 3. He would know that. But even more so, he would have met himself with God and have, have been told to return to dust. There is a, a somber picture of this in Deuteronomy chapter 32. You don't have to turn there. I will turn there. And I want just to read a short portion when God tells Moses to return to dust. Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 48. That very day the Lord spoke to Moses, Go up this mountain of Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite of Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain which you go up. And be gathered to your people. As Aaron, your brother, died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there. Return to dust, Moses. It is a sober commentary. Dust in Psalm 90, back into our text, the word is actually crushed or pulverized. It's small bits. It's particles. It's where the idea of dust comes from, but it's small, insignificant. We are fragile. We return to dust due to the curse, and our smallness and our fragile insignificance is further highlighted in verse 4 by the fact that God directs time and is not limited by time. We've seen this in verses 1 and 2. It picks it up again in verse 4. God is not hurried or moved by time. 
and an equivalent multitude lifetimes for us, a thousand years, are but yesterday to God. If I asked you how long is yesterday, it doesn't make sense. Yesterday is gone. There is no time for yesterday. Yesterday is past. A thousand years to God is like a watch in the night of about three or four hours in ancient times. Time forces our hand. We have deadlines. We see generations come and go, and yet God is Lord over time. God wields time. Time catches up with us. Time never catches up with God. God sweeps people away like a flood in verses 5 and 6. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. God does not just merely assist us or invite us back to dust. No, he sweeps mankind away. If returning to dust is the equivalent of death, even so is swept away like a flood. Some of your versions may say, end their lives, or you bring their lives to an end. God is shown as the active one in ending one's life. He is the cause, and they sleep. I think a good translation is that they sleep. Not necessarily a dream, although that does talk about temporariness, briefness, but it's literally sleep, that they sleep the sleep of death. It's a euphemism for death. And verse 6 picks up the end of verse 5. Like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it withers and fades. Moses is using this simile to describe people. We are like the grass that grows and it flourishes in the cool of the dew of the morning and it glistens and sparkles and is fresh and green and by the end of the day it is dead. And you know this to be true. How many are you gardeners out there? You know in the heat of the Missouri summer sun, your pepper plants and your tomato plants, the leaves, in the end of the day, they are withering. They are rolling up. They are stressed. Or what husband of you out there has not given a beautiful bouquet of flowers to your wife only to see that it's withered by the end of the day, much less three days later? We are like grass of the field. How brief our lives, how short. And Moses laments man's transience, that we are fragile. But why must it be all so fleeting? Why so temporary? Why do, why do we have to be mere mortals? Moses goes on to lament mortal man, and he laments sin and sorrow and wrath. In verses 7 through 12, we have the heart of the psalm here. In many ways, it sounds like the book of Ecclesiastes, if you're familiar with that. And where Solomon would be describing life under the sun. This is what life is like under the sun. And here Moses is describing it in his way. Back to our question, why must it be so fleeting? Why are we temporary? Why so fragile? Verse 7, for we are brought to an end by your anger and by your wrath we are dismayed. The first answer is because of the anger and the wrath of the Lord. It is the Lord's anger that sweeps men away. It is the Lord's anger that turns men back into dust. And if you'll note 
Verse 7 starts with anger and wrath. And then drop down to verse 11. Look at it. It ends with anger and wrath. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? These are bookends in this section. It's a literary marker that sets the stage for what this section is about. We are brought to an end. Some of your versions say that we are consumed. We are finished. We are made to be an end. The Hebrew dictionary says this is a hyperbole of severe discipline. We perish. We vanish. And it is the Lord's doing. And it is the promise of Genesis 2. In the day you eat of it, you will surely We see death. We experience death. We're dismayed. Look, the end of verse 7. We are dismayed. We are vexed. We are disturbed by death. But take special note of this, that God's anger is not arbitrary. It's not capricious. God's anger is not haphazard. He's not unjustified in his anger. Rather, his anger is due to iniquity and sin. Look at verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Moses laments that the community's iniquities and sins are ever-present before the face of God. And notice the parallelism. Before you and in the light of your presence. Nothing escapes the gaze of the Lord. He has put their sins before him and they stand as a witness against them and they stand as a justification for his righteous response. His countenance, his presence is described as light. Look, in the light of your presence at the end of verse 8. Now we know from John 3, our study, that light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And here, in full display, the sins of the community are before God. There are no secrets. The word is hidden, hidden things. There are no hidden things in the light of God's countenance, in the light of His presence. The light of His face shines in unwanted places. And whether we hope or we think or we wish that it were hidden, they're revealed in the light of his countenance. Here, sin is on full display before God. It is the reason for his anger, and it is the reason for our brief lives. Moses continues in verses 9 and 10, his sorrow that man's days pass away under God's wrath. He uses the parallel Days and years, you see this in verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath and we bring our years to an end. All our days, it's the totality of life. Our coming and our going, our work, our play, our relationships, our conversations, our activities, our hopes and our dreams, our life and our death, all of it is considered and we bring it to a close with a sigh. Verse 10, Moses marks and numbers our years. He literally says, the days of the years of our life. The days of the years of our life. Do you think about that? Days turn into weeks, and weeks turn into months, and months turn into years, and the years turn into a lifetime. 
and we have 70 or 80 years, maybe. Years of our life are 70, verse 10, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. Just as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, even our best years are met with work and toil. Even the pride of our years, our most glorious years, are met with frustration and sorrow and labor. William Plummer, in his commentary, says that each of these words, quote, signifies either a natural or a moral evil, end quote. Natural or moral evil, and we have experienced them all. They're reminders of the thorns and thistles of Genesis 3, the curse that God pronounced on our work and on the ground. Thorns and thistles. Seventy or eighty years, and they soon fly away. Over the Thanksgiving holiday, we visited my wife's family. We were sitting in the living room. My father-in-law was there. My father-in-law is a farmer his entire life. Strong man, loves to work, finds satisfaction in work, loves to be busy, to be productive, to be active. He's, He's not a workaholic. He just loves to work, and he's really good at it. But he is aging. And so the sons-in-law, where we were sitting around in the living room, and sons-in-law were giving him a, playfully giving him a little bit of a hard time. I, I can't remember. There was some activity that we were going to do, and, and he was sort of backing off and wanting to do this activity. We were kind of giving him a hard time. And he, w- he goes and he grabs a tape measure, and he gives an illustration. And he says, Paul, how does Scripture speak of our lives? 70 or 80 years. And he stretches the tape to 80 inches, about six and a half feet. He lays it on the middle of the living room floor, and he says, get down on your hands and knees. You point to the number that represents your years. So I pointed to the number that represents my years. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but, I'm, but I will say this. As I pointed to that number, I look back, and there's a lot more tape behind me than there is in front of me. It's a powerful example. Do this. Go home. Stretch a tape in the middle of your living room and look. And since this is the case, verse 11, Moses asks the question, has anyone stopped to consider these things? Given the facts of verses 1 through 10, who rightly considers the power of the Lord's anger? Who seeks a proper understanding of this life? Look at verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and the wrath according to the fear of you? The NET Bible says this, who can really fathom the intensity of your anger? Does anyone really fear God? Given His immortality and strength, given our mortality and sin, does anyone fear God? It's as if Moses is saying, look around. Look look at the devastation that sin has wrought. Our brief lives, our brokenness, our toil, our trouble, our sickness, disease, death, nothing lasts. Our years are heavy with frustration and sorrow. And is anyone reverently contemplating these things? It's a rhetorical question. There's no answer. The answer is evident. No one rightly does. So this is, this is why he 
goes right into verse 12. Moses answers his own question by crying out to God, pleading with God that he would learn from it all, that Israel would learn from it all, that you and I would learn from it all. It's the only proper response. Look at verse 12. To teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's an imperative. He's pleading with God. It's the pivotal verse in this whole text. It's the, it's the proper response of verses 1 through 10. And it's what propels Moses to plead with God in the rest of the psalm in verses 13 through 17. Teach us to number our days when, when we consider all of verses 1 through 10. And we know that things, these things to be true, we've experienced it. Death and trouble and sin and brief lives. We groan under the weight of it all. And all of verses 1 through 10 should be a lesson. A lesson for Moses, a lesson for Israel, a lesson for us. This fleeting and momentary life should instruct us to contemplate our days. To number our days. To think of each day with wise reflection. To consider our end. But do we go about our days blissfully heedless of how short life really is? And so we need wisdom. We need wisdom. We need a heart of wisdom, biblical, under, biblical wisdom to understand it rightly. Now what is that? What does that look like? It's this, that we understand God for who He is. And we understand ourselves and this world in light of the truth of what God has revealed. All of verses 1 through 10. We understand God's immortality. We understand the brokenness of this world. This is actually what it means to fear God. Proverbs 9, 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Does anyone fear God? Moses is asking. In other words, the wise heart, listen, the wise heart looks at life and sees that it is brief and sees all that sin has wrought and then cries out to God for mercy. For mercy and joy. And that's what Moses does. Do you see this? His plea in verse 12 to teach us to number our days propels him to cry out to God in verses 13 through 17. He pivots. He pivots from looking at this broken world. And he turns and he looks to God for satisfaction and joy. He turns back to the immortal God. He contemplates mortal man. And he goes back to immortal God. Verses 13 through 17, immortal God, our only hope. And Moses is satisfied in God alone. Look at the next several verses. Look, verses 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. There's a string of imperative statements. Moses is pleading with God. Return, O Lord, verse 13. Have pity, verse 13. Satisfy us, verse 14. Make us glad, verse 15. Establish the work of our hands, verse 17. Think of Moses' life. How many times he pled with the Lord. Lord, would you relent? Turn. And here again, Moses cries out, Return, O Lord, verse 13, have pity on us, have compassion. 
just as we are destined to return to dust, oh Lord, would you return to us? He's pleading, show your kind face to us. He's probably thinking of the time he was put in the cleft of the rock. Do you remember this? God reveals himself, and he says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Satisfy us in the morning, verse 14, that we may, in the morning, that with your steadfast love, satisfy us with this steadfast love that you are known for, that we may rejoice and be glad. In these troubled days, in these brief years, we need joy. And I'll admit to you that sometimes for me, joy is elusive. <laughs> but Moses' prayer is that the community would be satisfied in God as the only sure satisfaction. God's special love, his steadfast love. Some of your translations even capture the intensity of this so that we may sing for joy. Not just rejoice, but sing for joy. That we may shout for joy. Oh, make us glad, verse 15, for as many days of you as, as you have afflicted us. Gladden us. Cheer us. Delight us for as many years, Lord, for as many years as we have seen affliction, would you give us as many years to gladden us? Would you delight us? May we see a vision of your work, verse 16. Sometimes the mystery of God's providence, his sovereign design. What, what is God up to? May we see a glimpse of your work that we might have hope. And finally, in verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses hopes for the Lord's favor. The word is beauty. Oh, would your beauty shine upon us? Would your beauty be upon your people? And he pleads twice, twice. Fix and establish the work of our hands. Even though that we are temporary, and even though we are brief, and our lives are fragile, would you fix our work? Would you cause it to last? Fully, firmly, definitively make our work permanent. We may come and go. Would you make our work last? We know that kingdom work will last. We are temporary. Our lives are brief. The work that we do, we want it to matter. How shall we close? Psalm 90. How shall we respond to this? Just a few thoughts. First, consider the end. That's the main message. Consider the end. Yes, plan your year. 
make your goals. That's good. It's good to be productive. It's good to plan. It's good to seek wise counsel. Make your resolutions. Make your goals. Look to 2023. But do it all with eternity in mind. We're not given tomorrow. We're not given tomorrow. That's clear from this text. We only have today. Today is the day of salvation. Second, much of Psalm 90 is lament. I think you have caught that. It's lament for a life that it's hard. It's a a grieving for life that is hard due to sin, due to Adam's sin and rebellion in Genesis 3 and the subsequent curse that God pronounced. Much of life is now thorns and thistles. And we see and we experience frustration and sorrow and trouble and grief and all of this, sickness and disease. But listen to this, a heart of wisdom, a heart of wisdom does not let lament turn into bitterness. Does not let lament turn into bitterness at God. A heart of wisdom does not shake its fist at God because of this grievous world. But rather we humble ourselves, viewing ourselves in light of His majesty and His holiness and His power, and we confess and we acknowledge, yeah, sin and rebellion is to blame for this broken and brief life. Now, where is the hope? Well, there is hope for 2023. There is hope for 2023. Had Adam not sinned, there would be no death. And this truth is sobering. But the encouragement is what Pastor Brent read in Romans 5. This is the hope. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Though death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that in sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Though in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. Do not despair. Look to Christ Grace now reigns in Jesus Christ. Eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. Make it your solemn resolution in 2023 to be found in Christ. Be found in Him. Look continually to Him in 2023. Trust in His righteousness alone for your salvation. Finally, Last, 
May Christ be our chief satisfaction in 2023. Whatever your goals or your resolutions or your dreams or your wishes, may Jesus Christ satisfy you completely. Whatever hardship comes your way, whatever happens to this country and to this culture, and if hardship comes to Faith Community Church, May we all be satisfied in Christ. May we rejoice and be glad in Him. May we wake up in the morning satisfied in Christ's loving kindness. Oh, help me, help us, that all the days that we might see trouble in 2023, may He gladden us, cheer us. May He be our dwelling place and our home this year. Pray this for your soul. Pray this for your family. Pray this for your church. And as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, and when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Psalm 17. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Psalm 22. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell into your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Psalm 65. Bless the Lord who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles, Psalm 103. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm 107. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We may be satisfied in you all the days of our years. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for a new year. Thank you for your faithfulness in 2022 to this church, to your people. And thank you for a new year. May we find our dwelling in you this year. May we rest in you that you are our home. You are our home. Would you satisfy us? Would you help us? Gladden us? Give us joy in the midst of our years? Please, we ask that you would gladden us, that we may shout for joy. We may even sing for joy in 2023. And so, Father, I ask, Lord, for your favor to be upon this church in 2023. That we would trust you. We would be found in you. We would be looking to your righteousness and not our own this year. And we would love you. We would honor you. We would fear you. We praise you for all of this. We pray in Jesus' name.
Make sure it's stand and respond.